0: The Bible reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, Psalm number 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fail. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Good morning. Many, um, many of you won't know who I am. I try and fly under the radar as much as possible. But um, my name is Ray, and I've been coming here for about five years now. And you will see my family around. I've got a um, lovely wife, Hannah and two mostly well-behaved kids who are probably tearing it up in Croatia at the moment. But um, yeah, we've um, been coming here for about five years. Uh, like our esteemed pastor, my background's land surveying and um i manage um the landfill and drone mapping and virtual creating virtual models for buildings on in part of the company but that's a, a bit of who i am before we get started just to, in case you didn't know who i was so let me open in prayer and then we can get into it lord god we we come to you this morning we ask that you empower your word here this morning we ask that the the text of your word can really stand out to us, that it can really um, find a place in our hearts that, that we can ponder anew um, the teachings you would have us learn today. Lord, if, if, if we're here and we need a heart-hitting message, let it hit hard. If we need a comforting message, let it comfort. If we need encouraging, let it encourage, Lord. But most of all, we give you room to be Lord in the preaching of the word here this morning. We ask for your blessing on it. In Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1871 and a man named Horatio, he had had it all. He was a a nationally famous lawyer and he was one of the the founding um, partners of a prominent Chicago law firm. And he was only in his early 40s but he had already accomplished so much in his life. He was a respected lawyer. He had a a large house with acreage in a good suburb. He was a university professor specialising in medical law. He was a a charismatic speaker defending um, what's known as the temperance movement, and also um, spoke passionately about the abolition of uh, American slavery. And his real passion, though, laid in his, his spiritual endeavours. He, he was an elder at the local church, he was a Sunday school teacher, he helped found a Bible college, he started a lunchtime prayer meeting for like-minded businessmen, he worked alongside a famous evangelist that you all know called D.L. Moody in Chicago, outreaching in the city and and even going so far as to pay some of Moody's debts so he could go full-time in the ministry. He's accomplished a lot, this guy, and it puts us to shame. But, But his greatest accomplishment was his family. He was married and he had four young girls, ranging from newborn to nine years old. And he took seriously the responsibility of training up his children in the way of the Lord. And the story is told of his two eldest daughters... Um, expressing to D.L. Moody their wish to become uh, church members, the oldest being uh, around nine years old at this stage. Moody questioned the girls, and upon questioning, realised that they knew more about the gospel than he did. So he took them to the pastor and said, these girls need to be admitted into church membership as once. It all came from a, a strong family uh, where, where the word of the Lord was taught. He was a, he was a model citizen, a model Christian. But how was he to know that a cow of all creatures would set in motion a course of events that would break him emotionally, that would break him financially, and would come so very close to breaking him spiritually. The summer of 1871 was unusually hot in Chicago, and large portions of the the inner city slums were were built of of timber, and they were were a tinderbox ready for, for ignition. And one hot summer's day, a dairy cow in a downtown stable knocked over a lantern, started a fire in the straw and the fire spread quickly building to building over the course of two days. 2,000 acres were burnt through, 17,000 buildings were destroyed, 300 people lost their lives and 100,000 people, a third of the city was made homeless and in today's money that damage bill was close to $4 billion. Horatio's family were forced to flee the inferno and fortunately the fire bypassed his estate but the emotional toll especially on his wife was great you see Horatio was away on business at the time so it was up to his wife to rescue the children while trying to care for the seriously burnt friends and neighbours that they had and many stories were told from from eyewitnesses of the deplorable lengths that some people would would go to in that situation of profiting from other people's misfortunes martial law was enacted for two weeks and the army was called in Horatio's family and Horatio's estate were still intact, but he had a problem. He had a big problem, and it was a financial one. You see, before the fire, Chicago was a thriving metropolis, and in the past 10 years had grown from 100,000 to 300,000 people. And it was a city that was rapidly expanding to the north. And through his connections, Horatio saw a very good business opportunity, one that would allow him to have the financial backing to devote himself what he really wanted to do, full-time ministry. So he turned his hand to property speculation. If he could buy up large swaths of land towards the north of the city, it would only be a matter of a year or two before that land value would skyrocket as the city fringe expanded. We know know the practice today is land banking. People buy on the outskirts and try and hold on to the land in in the hope that it will develop and they can make a, a fortune from it. Horatio mortgaged his estate to the maximum the banks would allow and he poured all his life savings and some of the savings of his friends into purchasing large tracts of land. But unfortunately, all his eggs were in one basket. Only a matter of months later, after signing all those contracts, a good portion of the city was raised to the ground. It would now take many, many years for the city to again push towards the north, the land value was lost, only temporarily, but it was lost nonetheless, but the weekly interest bill remained and so Horatio, frustrated by the turn of events, dived even deeper into work to stay afloat, starting to get a bit frustrated at how his life turned out, but then came a big crisis of conscience for him. In order to meet the dreaded bank repayments, Horatio would sometimes secretly dip into the accounts of some of the estates that were held in trust in his law firm. And when his side investments would come to maturity, he would then pay back the accounts. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And after two years of, of, of slugging it out, he was still enslaved to the bank, but now he had a tarnished conscience from raiding his clients' nest eggs. So to cleanse his conscience, he put some of that land up for sale, even though it wasn't worth much, with the hope of restoring some of the borrowed funds and keeping the banks off for a while. And things weren't well on the home front either. After the fire, Horatio's wife was emotionally scarred and physically exhausted, running reach out programs to the city's disadvantage. And and the family doctor saw the situation and he advised an extended holiday for the family. Now, their their friend D.L. Moody had recently left for a gospel tour of the UK and He caught wind of the situation, sent a telegram back and asked Horatio and his family to join him in Europe for some rest and some ministry. They booked passage to Europe, but just before the departure, a potential buyer for the land came forward. And seeing the opportunity to restore the funds, to clear his conscience, to start afresh again, Horatio sent his family ahead of him on the the boat and he would follow on the next liner to set off once the deal had been finalised. The deal fell through. But there was a greater loss that would await him. Over the Atlantic, in the middle of the night, the cruise liner was struck by another vessel. I don't know how it happens in the middle of a vast ocean, but the two collided and the ship was sinking fast. The young family, Horatio's wife and his his four daughters, they made it to the deck, but within 10 minutes, the liner had sunk totally and Horatio's wife and daughters were thrown into the cold waters. His wife later told him how their youngest two-year-old was sucked out of her arms by the ship's vortex. She lost consciousness only to wake up in a lifeboat. All her daughters had perished and the people on the lifeboat had to try their hardest to keep her in the boat. Days later on dry land, she was able to send a telegram to her husband reading, saved alone, what do I do? That night, Horatio paced the floor back and forth the whole night in anguish. In two short years, he had lost all his children, he had lost all his wife, all his wealth and his wife would never be the same again. He caught the next ship leaving for Europe, and one day, and a couple of days into the voyage, the captain called him into the cabin. They were now passing over the very spot where the ship went down and his daughters perished. Again, he spent the night in turmoil, further questioning God and his faith. What do you do when sorrow after sorrow hits you? What do you do when your situation? is so utterly helpless? What do you do when your very faith and trusting God is on a knife edge? What do you do when you are frustrated with God and frustrated with life? We'll leave Horatio there for a short time. And let's rewind almost a further 3,000 years to a young man in his 20s. He was living the good life. As a boy, he was secretly anointed as the next king. He was trained up in his teenage years under a great prophet named Samuel, He had faith in God to the level of conquering giants and he had a seat at the king's table and even one of the king's daughters as his wife. He was a commander in the king's army and a great warrior. Of course, we're talking about David, a man after God's own heart. But things change quickly. David went from the king's right-hand man to fugitive. And it all started when a new song hit Israel's top ten called David has killed his tens of thousands. Previously, Saul only had a song called David Has Killed His Thousands. So Saul wasn't too happy with that. Saul, previously rejected by God for disobedience, begins to look on David as a rival and he plots to kill him. David escapes and begins life on the run and year after year after year, he was on the run from Saul. Those who helped him did so at risk of your life and you can read in 1 Samuel where those who did help him actually paid for their life for it. Many would betray his location out of fear of harboring a fugitive. From wilderness to wilderness, cave to cave, hideout to hideout, year after year of relentless endeavour, things spiralled so far down for David that in 1 Samuel 27, he believes he's only one step away from Saul and his death. He was supposed to be God's chosen one. Saul was supposed to be out of favour with God, yet Saul was triumphing over David not just once but year after year after year David had a crisis of faith what do you do when your very life is on a knife edge what do you do when it feels like god has abandoned you totally what do you do when you are frustrated with god what do you do when you're angry at him so david writes a song and in it we can learn the keys to remedy our frustrations with God and our disappointments of faith. And so we come to Psalm 13, which we read out before, a short psalm. It gives us the steps to journey from anger to peace, from frustration to acceptance. What do you do when you are frustrated with God? What do you do if you are angry with God? As we will see, first, you vent, second, you pray, and third, you refocus. Let's unpack David's uh, lament a bit here and read verses one and two again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? The first thing David does here, he vents his anger. Four times he cries out, How long? And this is not the cry of a kid in the back seat going, Are we there yet? This is the words of someone who is at his wits' end. And, and the words he uses, somewhat dulled by our English translations, are strong. He is totally frustrated with his lot in life. He is fully at the end of his tether and he points the finger to God You have abandoned me. You have forgotten me. You have turned away from me. Will this last forever? Because I can tell you, God, I'm only one day away from an early grave. David's enemy had the upper hand, and worse still, David's greatest battles were in his mind, with anxiousness and turmoil, constantly day after day. How long, Lord? He had become totally depressed with his life. And he gives us an answer here. What do you do when you are frustrated, angry, or depressed? David vented and if you're working through similar feelings I encourage you to do the same, vent it. Now that sounds sacrilegious and not at all pious, who are we to question God's benevolence? But I can guarantee all of us here will at some stage go through in our life and we will some stage see what we feel is the inaction of God. We will all go through it and that's how David saw it. He saw his troubles, he saw his frustrations, he saw his lot in life as a direct result of what he thought was the inaction of God. And so he vented. But I want you to notice something about how he did it. He vented his frustration about God to God, not to anyone else, not not, not to, to weaken the faith of other people, but he vented his frustration about God to God. And on top of that, he always maintained the relationship. And I guess when you look at it in an ironic way, if you are angry at the inaction of God, at least least it shows you still have God in the highest place to be angry with him for not acting in the first place. So in an ironic way, being angry with God, at least he's, he's still up there in your mind. But in spite of his frustrations and doubts, David still used the personal covenant for God that's translated Lord in our Bibles. He still remained in the faith. If you are frustrated at life, if you are, uh, are angry at the way things have gone, follow David's examples, vent your frustration, vent your frustration of God to God, but do so as one committed to still follow him. Decide in your mind that you will keep the faith, no matter what. David vented, but as we all read on, he didn't stop there. Let's go verses 3 and 4. Look on me and answer me. O Lord, my God, give give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. David vented, but he didn't stay there. He turned from venting to prayer. And if you are frustrated with God, even angry with Him, by all means vent to Him, but don't forget to pray. Staying frustrated, remaining remaining in anger, will only lead to bitterness. And if left unchecked, will more than likely ruin the relationship. Vent, but please, please, you must pray. David makes the transition from from groans of frustration to groans of petition for the Lord's help. I beg you, Lord, look on me with grace and favour. I beg of you, Lord, answer my cries for help. David knows that his ability to regain composure and see things from a different perspective rests only with God. And so he prays, give light to my eyes. The phrase could, could have a couple of meanings, both of which would apply to, to, to David's situation. The first is that David could be asking for his strength and vigour to return. Being on the run for many years, it'll sap the very life from you. We can read in 1 Samuel 14 that, that David's close friend, Jonathan, Tires after battle and eats some wild honey. And the text says that his eyes were were brightened. He regained his strength. And it's the same phrase that our psalm uses here. And and it's the message that if you are frustrated with the course of your life, if you are weary in following the Lord, join David and cry out to God. Go from venting to prayer and seek him to have your eyes brighten, your strength return and your vigour reinstated to live again him. The phrase could also mean having your eyes open to see things from a, a better perspective, kind of in the in the in the idea of shining a light on a dark path. And also encourage you in dark times to follow suit. Cry out to the Lord to, to open your eyes to his perspective, to a to a new way out of the turmoil. Whatever he meant by, by give light to my eyes, the reason is clear. If, if the Lord did not reach out in grace and love, David was lost, he was as good as dead and his enemy would triumph and God's call on David's life would be forfeited. True David vented but he didn't stay there, he turned to the Lord in prayer, he cried out for intervention and as we'll see once he had calmed his spirit through prayer he was then able to go from venting to prayer, from prayer to refocusing. Let's read verses 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing. I'll sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. If you vent, don't forget to pray. And once you have prayed, refocus. And so we see David, he he reaffirms his faith here. His very existence is due to the Lord's covenant love experienced in his life. In spite of the frustrations, he will continue to trust in God's love, he will conquer the doubting mind, the anxious thoughts, the nagging frustrations and he'll do it with a rejoicing heart, when the Lord gives light to your eyes you can see how he has been good to you, you can see the past deliverance, you can look forward to a future salvation, this is the pinnacle, this is the, the crescendo that this psalm takes us to, David started with anger but he ended in joy. He started with complaints, but he ended in songs of praise. He vented, he prayed, he refocused. And so he encourages us in spite of the turmoil, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the anguish in your mind, sing to the Lord, for he has been good. And there's something powerful about the song of, of, of the redeemed, those who have a, a new lease on life through the Lord's deliverance. It's, it's something, it has the power to, to, to even heal a broken heart. But there's something spiritually powerful in singing to the Lord. And I'm reminded of the story in, in um, the Old Testament of King Jehoshaphat, where the enemies were around him, and his battle plan was orchestrated by God, was to send out the praise and worship team as the front line. Now, I'm not sure how that went down in the praise and worship meeting during the week, but you can imagine the faith and the trust that they would have to have gone through to get that. And the Lord worked a miracle in that, the power of a singing voice, the power of a people united in praise to God. It has the power uh, to teach. You can read in the Old Testament, where in in the end of Deuteronomy, where it says that the book of the law uh, was only read out in, in, in certain periods, certain years of, of Israel's history. But Moses taught the Israelites a song so that the song could reinforce into them the principles of the law, that they could sing the song daily and, and get the idea of the law and li, li, live it out in their lives. And you know, we see it in, in, nowadays with songs now that it's why it's so important that the, the, the words of a song need to be really grounded in, in the word because I can guarantee you in one week, in two weeks' time... 99% of you, myself included, will have forgotten what I've said here today, but I can guarantee that if you hear a song from the 70s, 80s, 90s, up to today, you will remember it because it's deep, deep down there somewhere. The power, the power of a song to really foster our love for the Lord. It has the power to encourage and build community, and it says in Ephesians that we need to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and it has the power to refocus as we see in today's psalm are you frustrated with god i encourage you make the commitment join with david and journey from lament to praise refocus join with him in singing a new song of praise that's not to say the circumstances will change but you will have a higher vantage point of god enlightened eyes now we know from 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 the bible that david was able to make good his escape from Saul and he eventually was crowned king but his life was not always roses and rainbows he went through many more trials and he suffered great turmoil great turmoil especially with his own family if you know the family history of David there's a lot and a lot of anguish and turmoil there he had some significant crises of conscience and faith falling short of the Lord's grace but he always made the commitment in spite of Of the circumstances to follow the Lord. He followed him no matter what. Let's fast forward 3,000 years again to our man Horatio. Reminiscent of the Old Testament character Job, he lost all his children, he lost all his wealth, and in his frustration, in his turmoil, in his sorrow, in his helpless estate, he was still able to transition from lament to praise, from trouble to peace. And it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen quickly. By by the account given by one of his friends, it took a couple of years for the Lord to work that out in him, for Horatio to be taught to go from lament to praise, from trouble to peace. But I can guarantee you, Horatio's legacy continues with us to this day. Like David, it wasn't all roses and rainbows for Horatio. He started his family again and lost his first child again. His church turned away from him after he started to question its hyper-Calvinism in light of some people in the church suggesting that some of his children may be in hell. He became increasingly attached to a new end times theology which emphasised the Lord's imminent return and so he shipped his family and his little house church off to Jerusalem, Ready for the imminent return of Jesus. And of course, it didn't happen. His wife, herself suffering in mental anguish, took control over the commune they'd set up and pushed Horatio to the fringes. He died of malaria, ostracised, and virtually bankrupt. Yet his legacy has helped many a Christian work through their grief, their suffering, and even their sin after the calamities that took his children, after the calamities that took his wealth, after, the, after the, the soul gut-wrenching time that he went through, he was able to eventually write, "'When peace like a river attendeth my way, "'when sorrows like sea billows roll, "'whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, "'it is well, it is well with my soul.'" And he wrote a a further three verses and we'll sing this, this famous hymn in closing today and I encourage you to sing it with added gusto as a redeemed community rejoicing together in the goodness of God. But I also encourage you in closing, it may not be well with your mind. You may have lingering questions. You may have lingering doubts. You may be suffering in anguish. You may be suffering in depression. It may not be well with your mind. It may not be well with your heart you might be broken and you might be grieving. It may not be well with your senses, you might be suffering in illness or the very spark of life is diminishing with age. But please, please, I encourage you, allow yourself to get to the position where you can say with conviction, it is well with my soul. Why? Because if you are a child of God, If you follow Christ, if you have surrendered your life to the Lord, you have been redeemed. You have been given a new lease on life. You have gone from death to life. You have been saved by grace. You have had the very Lord of the universe step into your humanity, breathing new life into your very soul so that you are literally a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The chains of sin and death have been broken around your life. That is why you can say, in spite of anguish of mine, in spite of your faculties going, in spite of the grief of your heart, that is why you can say, in spite of the circumstances, it is well with my soul. Will you join with Horatio and say that? Will you join with King David and say, I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you this morning and we, we know of our own limitations in life. We're all too aware of our frustrations we have at you and at our life. And Lord, we just ask that you bear with us in patience. We ask that as we vent, we vent to you that you can come and comfort. We ask that we can pray and that we can realign our focus to follow you, to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Give us the strength to live out this psalm in our grief, in our anguish, in our depression, that we can follow you wholeheartedly and get to that position that we can say it's well with our souls. Lord, we need your spirit within us to do that. We need your power at work to get to that stage. Help us to get from the trialling circumstances to a life of praise and song to you. Give us the strength, the courage and the boldness to step out in that. In Jesus' name. Amen.